Greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us here at Center Campus, as well as those joining us from our campus in Northwest Calgary, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. Also want to welcome our online viewers as well. Well, did you know that last Sunday, six people from our Center Street Church Airdrie campus were baptized? <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> So we're truly grateful that uh, God is at work in all of our campuses, and we are one church that meets in many locations. Did you also know that as I'm speaking right now, the Cricket World Cup Finals is happening? <laughs> well, India is not playing in the finals. They lost in the semifinals. Otherwise, I would have called in sick this morning. <laughs> it's, going to be, it's happening between England and New Zealand. Well, this summer, we are continuing our study from the first letter of the Apostle John. If you were here last weekend, we looked at a fascinating text where John gives us the essence of God's character. God is love. This radical understanding of the nature of God sets the Christian faith apart from all other religions and worldviews. Love is not just another attribute of God. But everything God does is an extension of His love. Love is at the very core of His being. And the best news is, we don't have to perform and earn this love, but we receive this as a free gift. Well, my guess is, we church folks believe in God's love. We will get the right answers in a pop quiz. But the danger is, this can become just head knowledge. There can be a gap between the head and the heart when it comes to comprehending God's love. David Siemens points out what this could look like when there is such a gap in our comprehension of God's love. This is how it will look like in real life. God is seen as a figure on top of a tall ladder. A person says, I am going to climb up to God now. I am his child, and I want to please him more than anything else. So he starts climbing rung by rung, working so hard until his knuckles are bleeding and his shins are bruised. Finally, he reaches the top of the ladder, only to find that God has moved up three rungs. And God is that little inner voice that says, that's not quite good enough. Is that your conception of God? Most certainly, that's not the God of the Bible. Any view of God that doesn't affirm the centrality of His love is deficient. Any dominant mental image that we have of God that doesn't reflect His loving heart surely falls short of the description of God in the Bible. A mental pictures of God as a wrathful judge, a nitpicking accountant, an avenger who is uh, waiting to get you, do not reveal the truth about God's character. They are nothing but distorted images of God. The God revealed in the Bible is a God who loves deeply and unconditionally. You don't have to climb up the ladder to reach up to Him. He has climbed down the ladder to meet with you. That is the message the Apostle John wants us to take home from his letter. 
Now, what does it look like when we experience God's love in our heart? When we believe from the core of our being that we are beloved children of God. This intellectual truth about God's love all of a sudden becomes a revelation within us. And when this truth comes alive, it changes us inside out. God's love is like an ocean. And many Christians are merely paddling on the shores, in the shallow end of the water, unaware of the depth and the vastness of the ocean. But as a person goes deeper in their understanding of God's love and starts seeing themselves as God's beloved children, the text we're going to look at today tells us that it'll have a powerful effect upon our lives. I'm going to ask us to stand as we read our passage from 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Lord, we recognize the power of your word. We affirm the ministry of your spirit, that your Holy Spirit is able to take the written word of God into our hearts and cause these words to come alive in a fresh new way. And that is our prayer this morning, Lord. We ask that you will minister to us personally, individually, that we will hear your still small voice. We give this time into your hands. We ask this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. This is the season of weddings. We have a number of weddings scheduled here in our church this summer. Now, to me, the most important part of a Christian wedding ceremony is the vows. Couples today write their own vows, but nothing can beat the traditional ones the depth of the commitment that it communicates, for better or for worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us apart. A young couple make this promise on the day of their wedding to love each other. You know, the bride usually gets emotional as her soon-to-be husband looks at her in the eye and pledges to love her faithfully. I tell you, it's a wonderful, heartwarming sight. But you and I know this very well, that it really doesn't matter how beautifully someone crafts their wedding vows, 
The true test is in how these vows will be lived out in the years to come. It's one thing for a young man and a woman to declare their love on the day of their wedding. But when a husband and wife who have been married for 30, 40, 50, or 60 years say, I love you, their love means a lot more. You stand and take note of this, for they know what they're talking about. Their love has stood the test of time. It has become mature and complete. In some ways, that's true of our Christian lives as well. Now, God's love doesn't change. It's a constant. But our understanding and experience of God's love grows over a period of time. It deepens as we draw closer to God. Our knowledge and comprehension of the love of God also becomes mature with the passing of time. After addressing the fact that we did not love God, but He first loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice, the Apostle John goes on to say in our text in verse 16, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Two key words in the text are know and rely. This is how we start off our Christian lives, with the knowledge of God's love. This is not just an intellectual knowledge, but it has become an experiential knowledge. We come to personally believe that the the God who made the heavens and the earth, the vast expanse of this universe, this great and awesome God, loves us individually. And He demonstrated this love by sending us His Son, Jesus. We fall in love with God because He is in love with us. This is the beginning of the Christian life. And it doesn't stop here. It's the starting point. We are merely at the surface level. We then grow in our experience of God's love, start relying on God's love. In the good times, in the testing times, in every season of life, we come to trust in God's love. We lean on His love and find out that His love is able to carry us through. So as time goes by, our confidence in God's love grows. So our knowledge of the love of God should never be stagnant. It ought to keep maturing. In fact, the Apostle Paul says something similar to what John is saying here about maturing in our understanding of God's love. Look at Paul's uh, prayer for the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, Paul says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. The Apostle Paul is praying for the Ephesian church to be rooted in love, that God's love will become the unshakable foundation of their life. And not just that, he's praying that they will have the power to grasp the extent of Jesus' love. For this is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, granting us deeper insights into the love of Christ. And take note of this. Paul is not praying this prayer for non-Christians whose eyes are blinded to the truth about God's love. 
Neither is he praying for an immature church like Corinth that may possibly have struggles in this area. The church at Ephesus was doctrinally sound, mature in their faith, probably the best and strongest church that Paul ever planted. And Paul is praying that their eyes, the eyes of the mature Christians in Ephesus, will open and they will have the power to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Jesus. For even Christians need God's supernatural help to help us to see His love and go farther in our understanding. The love of Jesus is wide. It covers the breadth of all of our life experiences. It's long. It lasts all the days of our life and goes on into eternity. It's high in the mountaintop moments of our life when everything seems to be going smooth and easy. We are loved. It's deep time when we go through the valley, when life gets hard and we hit rock bottom. Even then we know that we are being loved. The Christian life is about abiding in the love of Jesus, allowing His love to wash over us, saturate us, until every aspect of our being is immersed in His love. And to think that we have figured God's love or we understand it completely will be a statement of spiritual arrogance. For no matter how many years we've been Christians, we have so much to learn, so much to grow when it comes to comprehending God's love. Even for all eternity, we will be learning and growing in this area. So the Apostle John also wants us to experience God's love personally and rely on His love and keep maturing in this area. Now, John offers two evidences or proofs of a love that has matured. If we are growing in our comprehension of God's love, if we are grasping the vastness of His extravagant love, we will be marked by these two things. First of all, we will be free from fear. So John writes in verses 17 and 18, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. One of the marks of mature love is our confidence in the presence of God. Christians have nothing to fear on the day of judgment. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you have not been forgiven of your sins through the shed blood of Jesus, then you have everything to fear on judgment day. For you have to give account of how you lived your life before God. No one is ever going to slide into heaven through your own good deeds. And you will stand before a holy God who's perfect and sinless and give Him an explanation for every decision that you made in your life. 
And I tell you, that is a terrifying prospect. But not so if you're a follower of Christ. That's all the more reason to give your life to Jesus. Christians don't live under fear of punishment. Jesus has already taken the punishment on our behalf, so we have nothing to dread on judgment day. So John says here in our text, in this world, we are like Jesus. In our spiritual standing before God, positionally, we are like Jesus. Now, that is mind-blowing. Let me read verse 17 again so we get this. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. We have to ask the question, in what sense are we like Jesus in this world? The context of our passage tells us we are like Jesus in terms of our confidence before God. Well, Jesus doesn't cover before God the Father in fear. That's not how Jesus expressed his relationship with God when he was here on earth. What was the word Jesus used to refer to God? He used the word Abba, a term that a child would use to address their dad in an endearing way. And there is no evidence in pre-Christian Jewish literature that Jews ever address God as Abba. This was a radical way of viewing God. It was unheard of before the time of Jesus. And notice this, Jesus didn't say, I am God the Son, I have a privileged status, so I can call God as Abba. You are on the second tier, so you use a different name. No. All of us, every one of us who follow Jesus have the same privilege of calling God as Abba Father. So what that means is we share the same confidence Jesus has in the presence of God. Now let that sink in for a moment. Fear and love cannot coexist. They are mutually exclusive. So John writes in verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. If we still fear God's punishment, then we have not grasped his love. A Christian who thinks God is waiting with a big stick to whack him or her every time they fall, has not been gripped by the love of God. Even God's discipline is an extension of his love, not an act of punishment, but it is an act of correction. Punishment does not apply to those who have been forgiven. The perfect love of God casts out all our fears. Fear is given the boot and shown the door. Now, wait a minute. You may be wondering, does the Bible not talk about the fear of the Lord? Aren't we supposed to fear God? Yes, the Bible does speak about the fear of the Lord multiple times. 
The fear of God has a positive connotation. Correctly understood, it's actually speaking about a reverential awe of God. This is a good fear. Fear that brings us closer to God in admiration and worship. This fear doesn't cause us to run away from Him, but rather run to Him. It is attractive. It's the same reason why people from all around the world would travel long distances to go and see the Niagara Falls. You don't want to be swept away by the falls, but you still love the sight of it. There's something within us that is drawn to its breathtaking beauty, and we look at its power and grandeur in awe. That's how the fear of God works. The awesomeness of God draws us closer to Him. I tell you, it'll take a whole sermon series to explore what the good reverential fear of God means. But the fear John is referring to in our passage is a different kind of a fear. This is a destructive fear. It's a fear of punishment, of judgment, fear that causes us to hide from God. It creates an aversion. And when we live our Christian life under the prospect of punishment, it puts us in performance mode, forcing us to somehow earn our acceptance before God. And in this case, the motivation for anything that you do for God is avoidance of punishment. And let me tell you, that is the mentality of slaves, not beloved children of God. John tells us negative fear in our relationship with God is a clear sign that we don't understand His love. As we look at uh, church history, there's one person who struggled greatly with this fear of God's judgment. A classical figure who went on to become so influential it's none other than Martin Luther, the most important person behind our Protestant Reformation. If you look at uh, Luther's life story, you will see that uh, he was terror-stricken as a young man at the thought of Christ as judge. The monastery where he was being trained to become a priest. Luther adhered to all the demands and committed himself to a, a life of rigorous discipline, more than all his contemporaries in order to gain forgiveness before God. He suffered from a depression born of guilt that somehow he was not meeting the righteous demands of a holy God. And Luther all along struggled with this question, how perfect do you have to be in order to go to heaven? But as Martin Luther opened the pages of the Bible, he found answers his soul longed for. By reading the Bible, the truth of the Scripture, Luther realized that we are saved by the sheer grace and mercy of Christ, and the church of his time had clearly distorted the teachings. And Luther's great discovery freed him from the fear of judgment, of somehow trying to appease God. And as he started preaching these newfound truths, he faced brutal oppositions, both from religious and political leaders. 
it would go against the powers that be of his time. And there was such pressure on Luther to recant his teachings, to follow the mere traditions of the church. But Luther stood courageously before rulers and authorities to defend this message. He would lay his life on the line in order to be a defender of the truth of the gospel. Pastor Erwin Lutzer mentions in his book, Rescuing the Gospel, Towards the end of Luther's life, as he was lying in his deathbed, he was looking back at his life and he said, I was fearless. I was afraid of nothing. God can make one so desperately bold. So with God's help, Luther, who started off as fearful of God's judgment, petrified at the prospect of standing before the judgment seat of Christ, became one of the most fearless men who has ever lived. Perfect love casts out all fears. Are you fearful of the circumstances that are surrounding you? Don't just ask God for courage. Ask for the power of God's love to be unleashed on your fears. For when we believe that we are truly loved by God, not only are we unafraid of God's judgment, we are unafraid of anything life brings. For if you know from the bottom of your heart that you are a child of the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has all authority and power. If you are so sure of this truth and this has become a personal conviction, tell me what is there to be afraid of? Whatever we face in life will have to go through the providential hand of our Father. And that is why Christians ought to be marked by this fearless spirit. It is our birthright as God's children. no matter what we face in life, God's promises to never leave us or forsake us. He guarantees us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that has been revealed in Christ. That is the emphatic truth of Scripture, and we can hold on to it at all times. The first mark of love is we are freed from fear. Here's a second mark of maturing in our understanding of God's love. We are free to love. Perfect love not only drives out our fears, but it also drives out our hatred. So we are free to love. As children of God, God has poured out His love into our hearts. So when our heart overflows with the love of God, it will have an impact on those who are around us. And John says something very challenging here in verse 20. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. John is not mincing words here. He's very clear and direct. To claim to know the God who is love and not love our fellow brothers and sisters 
will make us liars. I want you to think about this. Which is easier, to love God or to love people? If we were to vote on this, I'm pretty sure the majority would say it is easier to love God and harder to love people. The reason is simple. God is perfect and He loves us. And people are imperfect and sometimes mean. It's like the question, is it easier to love your pet or the people in your life? And for most people, it's a no-brainer. I came across this cartoon image of two women talking. The first woman says, I need a man who is loyal, faithful, patient, attentive, forgiving, unselfish, even-tempered, and a good listener. The second woman responds, go get a dog. (laughs) In fact, a medical research charity in the United Kingdom did a study that shows that we are more compassionate towards dogs than humans. Now, the charity group staged uh, their study around uh, two fake advertisements asking for financial donations. In the first ad, readers were told the sad story of a man named Harrison, and it read, would you give five pounds to save Harrison from a slow, painful death? Well, the story did not change for the second ad, but instead of being human, this time Harrison was a dog. And Harrison, the dog, received a lot more financial contributions than Harrison, the human. Well, it's ironic, but the point is, it is harder to love people because people have difficult personalities. It is easier to love a God who is perfect, or for that matter, even animals who seem so selfless. You would think the Apostle John would agree with our reasoning, won't you? But as you read what John is saying in our passage, it's fascinating. His reasoning is the exact opposite. He actually reverses the logic. For John, it is harder to love God than to love people. Because John says people are visible, but God is not. It's easier to love someone who is visible, whom your eyes can see, than someone who is invisible. So John says in our text, if you're not doing a very good job of loving people whom you see day to day with your eyes, then how can you possibly make this extravagant claim that you love a God whom you have never seen in your life? I don't know about you. I find that very convicting. The true mark of spiritual maturity and transformation is seen in our ability to love others. The Bible presents love as the acid test of Christian spirituality. And so many times we use the wrong metrics to gauge a person's spiritual maturity. It's not leadership abilities. It's not the supernatural gifts like prophecies and miracles. It's not preaching and teaching. It's not even our prayer and devotional life. But it's our love that serves as the most accurate measure of our spirituality. Love for God and love for people 
They are inseparable. Now hear these words of Jesus himself in John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So according to Jesus, what's the distinctive mark by which Christians should be known? Jesus could have picked any number of things, but he highlights just one thing, and it's our love for one another. For through our love, God's love is put on display for the world to see. The invisible love of God comes alive through the love of his people. And here's something we really need to know. Our capacity to love will not increase by us merely resolving to be more loving or through our self-efforts. If you've tried it, you know that it will not take you very far. Love cannot be a result of discipline and resolve. And we cannot manufacture love. The Bible calls us to be merely conduits of God's love. So when you meditate on God's love, when your heart grasps the truth that you are God's beloved child, when the Holy Spirit gives you the power to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Jesus, and you become a channel for His love to flow through you and touch the lives of others. As someone said, when you love God the most, you will love people the best. As we come to an end today, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a congregation, and that will be the culmination of our worship service. immeasurable love of God was seen in the sending of His Son, Jesus. How do we know God is love? What is the proof? In all other religions and worldviews, God's love is just a mental concept. And only in the Christian faith we see that God's love is not just a mental concept, but it is an objective reality. God did not just love us with emotional words. He showed his love in action. Jesus came down to earth. And not just that, he gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And when we grasp this love of Jesus, when we personalize his love, then we receive eternal life and there is no fear of judgment. Hear these words from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We don't approach the presence of God with our head hanging low in fear and trepidation. We come before the throne room of God, the dwelling presence of God with a bold assurance. Not because we are self-righteous people, 
but because we have that utmost confidence in the righteousness of Christ. And I pray, like the Apostle Paul, that God would give us the power. He would give us the power to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ. I'm going to ask us to maintain a moment of silence, reflect on what you have heard, and allow God to continue to prepare our hearts as we participate in the Lord's Supper. This time I'll ask the communion servers to please come forward. But the rest of us just maintain a moment of silence before God and allow the Spirit to prepare our hearts as we reach the culmination of our worship experience. I want to read to us from Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 24. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. This table is open to all who have received the love of Jesus in your heart. If you know in your heart that you are a beloved child of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, then you can participate in this high point of our worship experience. What we see here are symbols, but they are powerful symbols of God's personal love for each one of us. Today, if you're sitting here and you're not a follower of Jesus, there is that fear that comes as you think about the day of judgment. One day, standing before God and giving an account for your life. And today may be the day for you to surrender those fears to God and commit your life to Jesus Christ. In that very moment, the Bible says you are also forgiven of your sins and you become a new creation in Christ. If you're willing to make that decision today, then even you're welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. But the rest of us, as the elements come to you, kindly take and hold them. As the worship team sings a powerful song, allow God's love to become real and personal to you. Pray that God would give you the power to grasp the extent of His love. And together we will partake of the elements in the end. As the book of Hebrews exhorts us, we come before the throne room of God with confidence. Confidence in what Jesus has done for each one of us. What we are holding in our hands are visible reminders for us that because Jesus was punished in our place, we have no fear of punishment, but we have been accepted, adopted into God's family, and we are children of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
This is how much God loved you, that he allowed his son to be beaten on the cross, nailed, tortured. The body of Jesus was broken to demonstrate God's love to each one of us. Let's partake of this bread with gratitude. The blood of Jesus was shed. So we have a new identity. We can be called God's own children. Let's partake of this with gratitude. Do you join me in closing prayer? God, we stand amazed today, amazed by your love, the extent of your love, Jesus. Would you give us the power to grasp your love even more, the vastness of your love, that as we understand the true significance of this, that we don't have to earn your love, but we receive it as a free gift. May our hearts be flooded with gratitude, and may we live our lives as grateful children, not because we are afraid of Judgment Day, but whatever we do is an expression of our gratitude to you for all that you have done for us. Today, I pray that fear will have no hold over any one of us, that you will break the chains of fear as we find security in your love. And I pray that as you fill our hearts once again with the love of Jesus, may we be channels of this love, that your love will flow through us, will touch the lives of those who are really close to us, starting with our family members. I pray that this circle will widen and touch the lives of many more people as well. And even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us all through this week, both now and forevermore. Amen. Well, God bless you all. If you have a prayer concern, I want to encourage you to come forward and meet with someone in our prayer team.